and welcome to the 13th episode of Hunting for Candle Ends. I know, it's been a long time. In fact, you might hear a little reference to Halloween because I think some of this content was actually supposed to be sent out around Halloween. But you know, better late than never, maybe? This episode largely deals with themes of childhood and regional folklore. I'm very excited. I got to interview sort of one of my childhood heroes, Dr. Robert Anderson, who created a series of stories uh, about the Bailey Little Folk, which were basically about the neighborhood that I grew up in in East Lansing. So he's the first interview that you'll hear. Also, after that, Mike Schwartz will discuss... The, maybe the darker side of folklore in books and movies that he recently enjoyed. Dan Hartman, also a Bailey School alum, will review Birds, Beasts, and Relatives by Gerald Durrell. My song of the week will be after that. I'll, I'll leave it as a surprise, but it kind of fits into the main theme. Then finally, actually, it's my attempt at a Bailey Little Folk song. So stay tuned for that, if you dare. Now, first up is my interview with Dr. Anderson, and I know that Dr. Anderson isn't in a band or internationally famous, but what he did by creating a neighborhood mythology makes him a rock star in a lot of us now adult people who grew up in East Lansing, home of the Michigan State Spartans in a neighborhood called the Bailey Neighborhood due to the location of Bailey School, um, which closed actually in 1984. But Dr. Anderson created a series of stories about a group of mischievous little people called the Bailey Little Folk. And while I don't ever, I don't think I actually happened to be in a classroom to hear his storytelling, the reach of his stories were that everyone knew about the Bailey Little Folk. And in the words of my friend Hannah on Facebook, she said it, he gave our childhood a sense of magic. And in fact, I used to basically ride my bike by the what was the home of the Bailey Little Folk um, nearly every day. It was right by my friend's house. So you just you had a sense not just of not just of this mythology that was fun, but it gave your mind an idea that you could be creative with anything. You could create your own stories about your neighborhood, that you can use what you see around you as sort of a, a starting point for your creativity, and you can create stories, you can create songs. One of the Just one of the influences from my childhood that I, in fact, I would never have even thought of it until it was sort of years later when I realized the impact this one man had on a lot of kids. So I was really excited to interview him, and I hope that you hearing him, you won't just think, oh, this doesn't have anything to do with me. I hope you'll think to yourself about uh, the relevance of this interview, maybe, would be to you about to think of the, the importance of storytelling in your life, uh, in your childhood, on your community, or who the people were that made your childhood important, and how you can maybe do that for your kids, or even being a storyteller at, at, at your local neighborhood. Not that it's something I've done, because I can't stand hanging out with that many kids at one time, but, you know, may, maybe it will work for you. I know I get even a little bit too specific on some of these questions, but these are the questions I had to ask him after reading the stories again. Um, I needed, there's just specific things I needed to talk to him about. So, if there's anything you want to know about, you can give me a tweet or an email. There, maybe I can explain something better that w w would be a little bit too vague. For instance, there's a story about the Bailey Little Folk where Frig Newtons uh, get dispersed all over the neighborhood, and that's why he mentions that. Okay, anyways, um, <clears throat> here's the interview. More later.
I guess my first question is, where did you grow up? I grew up in Syracuse, New York. Were there storytellers in your town? Were there stories about the town, kind of like you created later? Um, not that I'm aware of. Now, Syracuse uh, was a big salt producer. In fact, it was originally called Salt City. And there were, I mean, there was a salt museum there, and there were there was a local history that I was familiar with. Uh, the main storytelling that I remember was more in school, in elementary school, when uh, I don't know whether it was every day, but pretty often the teacher would read from a book, uh, chapters from uh, a story book. So I guess basically I, I don't really feel that... Uh, there was any in, uh, intentional storytelling in my background. Of course, there's a lot of unintentional. I mean, I uh, was read books by my parents, and I got to the point where I read books and so on. And I was familiar with uh, uh, a lot of the classics, so to speak, you know, like the Three Bears, <laughs> Three Little Pigs, and so on. Now, I know you were a professor at Michigan State for for many years. Uh, what was your area of study? Well, I was in religious studies. My Ph.D. is in uh, Hebrew Scripture, that is Old Testament. And, of course, there I became quite immersed in stories, the biblical stories, uh, in analyzing them and uh, various forms of approaching stories, you know. When you moved to East Lansing, did you always live in the Bailey neighborhood? Well, uh, the first three years we lived in what was referred to as the faculty bricks that is over on Cherry Lane. Uh, um, and that was from 57 to 60. In 1960, we moved over to Cedar Street in East Lansing behind McDonald's there. Well, everybody knows Cedar Street, I guess, now because of the riots. But anyway, um, Cedar Street. So then we were in the Bailey District, and then we lived there eight years, and then we came here to Butterfield Drive uh, across the street from what was Bailey School. And so what were the what were the origins then of the Bailey Little Folk Stories? Well, I was asked at one point to be a, quote, story lady at Bailey. They had a lot of volunteers in various areas like art and um, uh, t- uh, reading or telling stories. And I guess they knew that uh, professors like housewives uh, didn't have anything else to do. So they were a good source for volunteers. And I was asked to be a story lady in the uh, when my son was in the third grade. And after a day or two, I mean, I, I went once a week, and uh, usually on Tuesday mornings, I think it was. And uh, after a couple of weeks, I had exhausted the stories that I knew off the top of my head, and I began reading stories. And then, uh, uh, oh, I told all kinds of stories, uh, uh, the Br'er Rabbit stories and King Arthur stories and the Grimm Brothers stories and uh, various ethnic and folk stories. 
And then I became aware, not only through them, but certainly through the biblical stories, that many stories are etiological, that is, they explain the origins of a name or uh, why uh, a place was significant and so on. And for some reason that intrigued me, and I began uh, playing with making up stories about uh, local features, like the the traffic circle that you mentioned yesterday there at uh, that beach and uh, orchard, and um, the big oak tree at Kitty Corner from Bailey School. And one day there was a photo on the state news uh, a, a truck driver sitting dejectedly on the axle of his truck, the rear axle that had fallen off the cookie. <laughs> he was a cookie. Truck oh my gosh. <laughs> I didn't know. That's what I was going to ask you if that was real. I, I can't believe yeah. it. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that was the impetus for it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I, I began trying to create stories and thinking, well, how do stories originate? What, uh, what gives them their their uh, impetus? I do remember my father, for example. I asked him once, we got our water in Syracuse from the Skinny Atlas Lake. And I said, what does Skinny Atlas mean? And he made up a story on the spot. I don't, <laughs> I don't know whether he didn't know or what, but anyway, he made up a story to explain why it was called Skinny Atlas Lake. And so it was in that uh, that kind of frame of reference, so to speak, that I was thinking, I wonder if there isn't a way of making these stories, uh, making up stories that are relevant uh, to our locale. Yeah. No, um, and another thing, actually, in one of the stories is you mentioned a couple of them. You mentioned Crazy Legs, the dog, and that was a yeah. real dog, I, I remember. But there was a stray that was yeah. all over right. the neighborhood. Right. What do you remember about that? Do you remember the story of how that of that dog? Do you, uh... I don't know. Uh, I don't think. I, I think it was just that it was, uh, so to speak, a familiar dog, and I just incorporated him into the stories, like I did the old AMP that used to be at where now Brookfield Plaza uh, is, and so there were and the the um, Orchard Street Circle. And I would try to incorporate local, I was going to say personages, although uh, like animals or people. I don't know that I really remember uh, using people. I made up people. Uh, there was a story, Mean Maribel, that I said lived in a house that once was located on the Bailey School yard. And that got started in my head because when we converted from I guess it was converted to gas, natural gas here they uh, had to dig actually they found that there was uh, an outlet here and the guy the guy that was digging said there must have been a house across the street because there's a pipe coming from there well, I couldn't believe it. I, I don't know if I still believe it because it would be on the Bailey School ground, and that uh, uh, I don't have any sense that there ever was a house over there. But anyway, I used it as a takeoff to talk about a house there. What What was it about the circle in particular at Orchard and Beach that made you think that that would be the place to 
to have the belly little folk live? Well, uh, I don't know if I honestly recall okay, sure. the order, but anyway, I had that fellow going home from a dance, and uh, it, it was well, it was one of these ideological stories. Why is there a circle at at uh, Beach and uh, Orchard? Right, which is pretty rare. It is unusual, and, yeah. Yes. And so I was making up a reason why this, the circle was there, and that was, that was the base of the story. When did you begin to realize that the stories were beginning to get a life of their their own, that they were being retold or new ones created? I know for, for me, um, the stories started to be passed down. My, my older brother probably heard them from you and then would retell them to me. Um, had you Did you yeah. get an idea that they were becoming, you know, things people were talking about? Well, it is sort of fascinating, and I think more um, episodic than you know, any uh, particular day or year uh, when there was a, oh, my word, kind of thing. But it it surprises me that even today, um, oh, occasionally I'll get an email from somebody in Kansas that was <laughs> and heard the stories in the third grade, and... Uh, asks if there are copies of them or has already has them and talks about telling them to their children and uh, uh, that that's sort of nice i think probably one of their biggest impetuses to it getting any uh, attention outside of their classroom was um, i think this uh, east lansing school board got a grant of some sort to um explore the history of East Lansing. And one day someone called me and asked if uh, they could use the stories. <laughs> and I said, yes, of course, but I said that they're not really history in the usual sense of the word. <laughs> and they said, oh, yes, they knew that. And they, out of that grant, uh, financed and published a little booklet. I think the one you... The one they have at the library, got, um, yeah. Yeah, right. And um, they also had a a, a, a uh, audio, I don't know just what the uh, technical term was, but anyway, they could show it on television. Of uh, They asked me if I would tell a couple of the stories, which I did, and so it was on television, I don't remember what channel, but one of the public service channels, a school channel or something like this. And uh, so it got a little attention uh, that way. And so it's been more here and there, a, um, something comes up. And it, I mean, it's uh, quite delightful. I had a, I was in Ann Arbor one time using the library and I ate in the union, and the young woman that was uh, dishing up whatever I was getting asked, said, are you Dr. Anderson? And I said, yes. She said, uh, you know, I grew up in East Lansing. I went to Bailey School. You told us the King Arthur stories, and so today I'm in medieval studies. Well, I don't know how literally that was, but of course it was, uh, it was uh, sort of awesome to think that... Uh, not only was it entertainment, but there was uh, some inspiration, so to speak, uh, in those stories. 
she it turned up when I I later found out who she was because her mother told me, and she lived on Bailey Street, <laughs> so she was only a block or two away from here. Um, now the way that they're printed in the book, and you know, is that the way that you would tell the stories? Had you had you written them out and then you would read them off to the class, or did you kind of say them by memory and then it was only later that you actually wrote them down? It was only later. They they got written down. The um, librarian at uh, Bailey often recorded them. I don't know how often, but anyway, they were they were recorded. And when um, the school approached me about uh, having copies of them, I had no copies of them because, to answer your first question, yeah, I just told them off the top of my head, so to speak. Uh, I mean, I had in mind. The, the general idea where I was going, uh, but they were never uh, written until the school uh, asked if they had had copies. Well, then I got, uh, I think some of them had even been, you call it transposed, <laughs> and they also gave me some of the tapes of particular ones that I could uh, Oh, refresh myself, and then I wrote them. So the writing came uh, after the storytelling, which I guess is the way uh, writing came in history. <laughs> we we spoke first, I guess. Yeah. So no, I did not write them first. Now it seems does seem like there's some stories that might not be in the book. Um, do you remember stories about the pumpkin lady? Does that sound familiar to you? Oh my, yes. Is is that uh yeah the, the, apparently it's it's um my friend's mom Chris Hartman she she yes, thinks yes. she's the pumpkin lady okay that's right that's okay. right she is and when you mentioned it yesterday it didn't immediately jump into my mind but yes that's right and uh, uh, <laughs> she told the story of uh, a young boy on his hands and knees there in the uh, in the inside the circle, and she was concerned because she used to plant pumpkins in the uh, around the street light there in the middle of that uh, circle. Right. And then uh, they would often be vandalized, and she saw this little boy out there on his hands and knees, sort of crawling around, and she came out to sort of uh, chew him out, and he. <laughs> According to the story that she tells, he said, shh, uh, you'll wake up the little folk. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So are there other fragments of stories that you that you know you had little bits here and there that just didn't make it into the book? Well, I've had a lot of funny things. In fact, not too long ago, I mean, within the last couple of years, there was a uh, uh, a young boy uh, in elementary school, he came by with his mom, and he wanted to meet me because he had read the story. He was not, obviously at this point, he was not anybody that I had ever told stories to. And uh, he came back in a few days and handed me a story that he had written about the little folk. And there, there, were, there was that kind of spinoff that is... Um, Children would often give me uh, things, uh, pictures that they had drawn of events in the little folk stories, so that it, in a sense, they were 
an expansion of the stories that, uh, just as a matter of fact, I don't know whether it was Chris who told me the story, but anyway, somebody told me that uh, story. Uh, I mean, that wasn't my story. That was <laughs> a story somebody else had uh, developed. So that there were there was some ex- expansion of the, so to speak, daily little folk um, t- tradition like that. There were many stories. I mean, I told... I think in the booklet, I don't know, there may be 10 or a dozen, I can't remember, but uh, whereas I told these stories uh, uh, <laughs> rather endlessly, I mean, <laughs> there, were, there were many of the little folk stories, uh, and which ones uh, were, so to speak, fragments that uh, never made it <laughs> into the stories, and which ones are just... Uh, they were stories that uh, maybe were once told stories, so to speak, and uh, never got uh, recorded in any way because um, I didn't write them down. Yeah, I imagine you probably had an audience that sort of expected new stories every week. You know, you had to probably keep coming up with them. Yes, within a year's framework, uh, that is, I would go like to the third grade is when I started, and then it seems to me that I also, for whatever reasons, ended up sometimes in the fourth grade. I might have even have been in the fifth grade once, but um, for 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 a year. And of course, for that year, I had to not duplicate the stories. I shouldn't really say that because often children would ask to hear the same story again, which is uh, very interesting. But anyway, yeah, I would. I I tried to have. Um, uh, and and also for my own sake, I mean, uh, uh, it, it was on the one hand fun to create new stories, and on the other hand, some stories would get tires to me after a while, and I didn't want to use them uh, anymore. I, I I didn't want to use a story that I wasn't really into. I think that's certainly one of the tricks of storytelling that uh, the story has to be meaningful to you or you're not going to tell it well right so just as a sort of a broader question um i I sort of am reading here that creating the bailey little folk stories part of what you did whether there was your intent or not was to create a sort of folklore for the bailey neighborhood and do, do you have beliefs about the importance of tradition and folklore to a community that you would want to share Oh yes, I think that uh, I think uh, uh, I'm sort of a dogmatic uh, uh, supporter of storytelling. That is, I think that our lives are held together by stories. That we make sense of our own personal lives by the stories we tell. We make sense of our community by the stories we tell. Whether East Lansing and certainly as a nation, I mean we. our, our nation is held together by the stories we tell, and uh, very seldom did a uh, uh, elementary student ask me if a story was true. I think that there was a way in which they understood story better than we do as adults. I mean, we get to this because so often when we ask if a story is true. We mean, is it factual? And many stories are true, whether or not they are uh, factual. And 
there's a line between uh, truth and facticity. In fact, I think one of my stories was something like truth. I had characters named truth and fact. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is a very fine, uh, and I shouldn't say fine line. There isn't any line there. They they blend into uh, each other really, and uh, yeah, they our our society itself only makes sense as we tell stories about it. I mean, there are myriad experiences that we have as individuals or as a society, and to try to collate them in any uh, meaningful way uh, is a tremendous job, and it is our, our, uh, it is our uh, creativity that does ultimately give um, meaning uh, to our lives at every level, individual, societal, whatever. All right. Thanks again to Dr. Anderson. Um, really great to do that interview. I did have some more information, which I had heard about Crazy Legs, the dog, which I mentioned in there, which is pretty horrific and kind of why makes him sort of this a scary childhood memory for maybe a bunch of people, which is apparently he was a dog owned by some college kids, and essentially they abandoned him, and the dog was starving before it was released, and then it somehow just ran off into the into the neighborhood and was a stray dog, which I don't think we, I don't know if we have that anymore, stray dogs, you know, you certainly have stray cats here and there, but... This was actually a dog that you would occasionally look back in your backyard and the dog would just be running around in your backyard. It was very frightening. Uh, my family was already kind of scared of dogs, so it was sort of an, an additional uh, fear. My friend Dan Hartman, who you'll hear from later, had a standoff with him coming home from school at the age of five. I heard all this from Chris Hartman, a.k.a. the Pumpkin Lady. If you would like a booklet of Dr. Anderson's stories, I managed to get a whole bunch of them from the uh, Neighborhood Association I'm sending them out for $3. Basically, I'm just uh, uh, pumping up the price. They were originally a dollar. I'm pumping up the price to uh, for shipping. And if you'd like one, send me an email to candle at candle-ends at candle-ends.com. Um, and we can work out a PayPal or something, and I can send that off to you. Up next, we have Mike Schwartz discussing folklore and fantasy uh, in, in, in books and films that he checked out recently. Hi everyone, Mike Schwartz here, and in keeping with this week's theme of fantasy and folklore, I want to discuss a few short story collections and a few films that I've read and seen recently, which embody the dark side of fantasy and fairy tales that I loved so much as a kid and still do today. First up, a longer review of In Search Of, a short story collection by Will Ludwigson. Will Ludwigson is the best weird fiction writer to emerge in a long time. Ludwigson writes in the tradition of writers like Algernon Blackwood and Arthur Machen, writers who evoke terror, ecstasy, and mystery through subtle suggestion and the creation of an otherworldly atmosphere. It's a tradition carried on recently by writers like Jonathan Leffam and Stephen Milhauser, whose recent collection, We Others, I will also review here. There's also a large dollop of speculative fiction, and at one point a character in one of his stories picks up a Philip K. Dick novel, indicating another key influence. However, Ludwigson is also paying tribute to a more obscure and pop-cultural influence. 
a 1970s TV show called In Search Of, hosted by Leonard Nimoy. The weekly show would look at different paranormal phenomena under the guise of scientific examination, even as the introductory disclaimer stated it was all based on conjecture and theory. Although I never watched In Search Of, I did read the spin-off books, along with anything else I could find on such mystery-shrouded subjects as the Bermuda Triangle, the Marie Celeste, ESP, and the identity of Jack the Ripper. I, like Ludwigson, was seeking out the secret history of the universe, and I've never really outgrown this. Last year I picked up Colin Wilson's Supernatural, a sprawling history of the occult, and I found that I couldn't put it down. It's the kind of book I would have devoured as a kid. I recall the under-the-covers excitement with which I read these books, but also the lingering sense of disappointment when I realized that many of these mysteries were pure myth. Which is why I was so happy to discover Ludwigson's In Search Of. In the foreword, Ludwigson mentions that he is exactly like the reader of his stories, always in search of the fantastical and wanting it to be true. Ludwigson mentions the same disappointment I felt all those years ago. He says, with every debunking, the frontiers of wonder shriveled in my, inward in my mind. This book is his attempt to recover that lost sense of wonder. To give you a sampling of the wonders you will find in these pages, I'll quote from the excellent introduction by Jeffrey Ford. A dreaming greyhound racing in its sleep. A decrepit house pulling away from its foundation and moving across the landscape at night in search of the answers to its own haunting. A bizarre recurring marionette show at the bottom of a well. Children in animal masks shouting their accumulated cruelty into the earth. A suspicious clown seen fishing. A troop of boys venturing into the woods, not after merit badges, but instead wonder. A mysterious manuscript of strange fauna whose first word translates to universicule. The last real people in the world. In the notes in the back of the book, Ludwigsing reveals that many of these stories were written under a challenge. He found an old photo or stock footage and gave himself one hour to write whatever came into his mind upon looking at it. Some of the best of these postcard stories came to him after looking at illustrations by early 20th century children's book illustrator Elizabeth Shippen Green. The illustrations, which Ludwigson calls creepy realistic, a common image somehow imbued with the implications of something strange behind it, resulted in some very ethereal stories. For example, the story Endless Encore came from an amazing image of a girl holding what looks like marionette strings down a well. Like many of these stories, this is a perfect campfire tale, and I was lucky enough to be able to read this one to my wife over a campfire at Baker Lake in the North Cascades. The story's ghostly revelation made for a perfectly freaky moment out in the wilderness. The speed of dreams is what Ludwigson came up with when he thought about what his greyhound dreams of while it sleeps, muscles twitching and legs kicking. I've wondered this same thing when looking at my own dog Irma in her active dreams. It's also about something I've often thought about since reading Freud's interpretation of dreams in high school. The strange way that time works in dreams, with seconds that stretch out to hours and complex narratives that blossom from the physical stimuli our bodies experience while we sleep. This story also reminded me of the old Twilight Zone episode where a child's recently departed grandmother calls her up on a phone from the afterlife, coaxing and urging her to come join her. The ending of this particular tale is pretty devastating. One of my favorite stories in the book, because it appealed so directly to the wide-eyed wonder child inside of me, was We Were Wonder Scouts. 
I joined the Boy Scouts for some of the same reasons that Ludwigson did. What did we want out of the Boy Scouts? Ludwigson says, It took me many years and some reading of Algernon Blackwood to realize that what I really wanted was a sublime experience in the woods. I wanted to scrape up against something deep and primal, to see something wondrous. Well, I still look for this when I go out to the woods. And had the Wonder Scouts existed when I was a kid, I would have signed up immediately. Interestingly, the story's troop leader, who leads the Scouts on their mysterious expeditions, was based on an actual person, Charles Fort, an American writer and researcher into what he called anomalous phenomena. With Halloween around the corner, it seems timely to mention a few of the scarier tales in this book. Two of the stories feature kill houses, houses where murders took place. The forgettable A Chamber to be Haunted seems like a literary version of that campy American horror story TV show, but the superior Remembrance is Something Like a House is one of the more haunting tales in the book. In this story, the house comes alive, not to spook its residents, but to find the son of a Polish immigrant wrongfully killed for a murder he did not commit. The house is the only one that knows the secret, and since it was the child's death since the child's death was the house's fault, feels the need to tell the son of the wrongfully executed man, even if it means pulling up its foundations and migrating across the country. There are also two tales of waterlogged horror, Nora's Thing, a creepy little tale featuring a monstrous healing attempt, and She Sells, which is scary, spooky, and Lovecraftian. Both are examples of Ludwigson's postcard stories, written quickly after studying anonymous photo old photos in the public domain. Not all of these postcard stories are successful. Wit Carlton's Trespasser, the one featuring the suspicious fishing clown, seems forced and awkward. Mothers, both protect protective and needing protection, feature prominently in a few of the stories. Prudenter to Dream has a neat premise concerning a nine-year-old girl who is not really who she seems, and her mom who protects her from evil men trying to start a nuclear war. It's slightly cheesy, kind of like the film Dreamscape, but at its best, it reminds me of the alternate realities of the science fiction writer John Varley. Singularity Knocks, a story about what happens when one brave individual rejects the bright, shiny, matrixy future where everybody's being uploaded, also reminds me of a Varley tale. The other one about moms, Mom in the Misted Lands, is a touching tale of a mentally ill mom and the one boy who understands her. Another ghostly tale, The Ghost Factory, is a strange haunting tale of a failing, fading mental asylum. I loved the central theme of the, theme of the story, the peop that people who aren't noticed by other people, who aren't being heard or seen, simply fade away until they become ghosts. The central character, a very ineffectual psychologist, is written after Ludwigson's father. The psychologist of this story realizes that he lacks compassion late in the story, and it's disastrous when he does. So in closing, I urge you all to check out these stories for yourself, and I guarantee you'll get swept away in this world of myth and madness. I really can't wait to see what Ludwigson comes up with next. Another writer who ventures into the world of the fantastic and the absurd, using the fairy tale structure, in addition to historical romance and contemporary horror, is Stephen Milhauser. He's been writing for decades, although many people only know him for writing the story that the film The Illusionist is based on. But I just discovered him this year. We Others is his latest collection, and it's kind of a weird place to start because it combines new and old stories. Although these hybrid collections rarely hold together, this one really does, since it's that rare case where the new stories are every bit as good as the old ones. 
And this includes the title novella, which explores what it would actually be like to die and live an incorporeal life. Milhauser's stories also unearth the mysteries beneath ordinary life. Some of the stories are realistic with touches of magic realism, such as Getting Closer, about a precocious girl preparing for a swim, or Tales of Darkness and the Unknown, Volume 14, The White Glove, about two teenagers in a budding romance and the strange white glove that separates them. Some are more fantastical, including fairy tales of flying carpets, giant frogs, automatons, and strange inventions that mimic touch, a predator who randomly slaps people, and a bizarre variation on Tom and Jerry. Here's Jonathan Lethem in the New York Times on two of my favorite stories in this collection. The next thing describes a super department department store of the future, one that undermines, literally since the store consists of a vast basement, the life of the American town where it appears, having arrived first as a fad and diversion, and then increasingly becoming a new mode of being for the town citizens. The next thing forms an explicit dialogue with Milhauser's earlier story, The Barnum Museum. A fantasia of a vast and magical institution that adapts to the desires of its visitors. The Barnum Museum is quintessential Milhauser. It exemplifies his interest in microcosms, dioramas, stage shows, dream worlds, and so on, that loom into macrochasms, and then threaten to rival or even engulf the reality that gave birth to them. Really, I can't say anything better than this about these two amazing stories, or about any of the amazing stories in this collection. After finishing this, I now feel compelled to go out and buy each of Milhauser's previous collections. He's an author who I feel the need to read everything by, and I look forward to many more hours plumbing these unique tales of mystery and suspense. And now for a few brief film reviews that also use uh, films that also use and explore folk tales. Sidney Lumet has directed many excellent dramas for television, probably none better than Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey into Night. However, my favorite is the last piece of work he did for the small screen before making the leap to the big screen. His 1960 teledrama interpretation of the Dybbuk, the classic Jewish folktale of possession and exorcism. Lamette has had a personal connection to this story, which was written for the Yiddish theater by a folklorist and writer, Solomon Ansky. Lumet's father appeared on the Yiddish stage in the original version of the Dybbuk, and this adaptation obviously meant a lot to him. The story of possession is unique in that it's not a demon that does the possessing, but the spirit of Hanan, a young Talmudic scholar played by Theodor Bikel, who possesses his intended bride after she is betrothed to a rich mer merchant by her father. The possession is the result of a curse because the bride's father did not allow his daughter to marry Hassan, which broke an oath he made to Hassan's father. In Jewish myth, a dibbik is a disembodied spirit, often but not always with malicious intent, who occupies the body of a mortal being until its goal is accomplished. Sometimes the dibbik takes over a newborn baby and leads a full life, never accomplishing its goal. But if it possesses a grown adult, then an exorcism may be needed to help him progress to the afterlife. Several of the philosophical debates in the film come straight from the Kabbalah. I was fascinated by the Kabbalistic belief that all things, including Satan and sin, are holy and come from God. This teledrama also includes lengthy quotes from the Song of Songs, illustrating how Hanan's love for his bride is tied up with his spirituality. In addition to being a philosophical treatise, a celebration of Hasidism, an exploration into the Jewish afterlife, and an examination of the bonds that hold people together and people to God, 
The Dybbuk is also a love story, with the bride choosing death over a life of loveless marriage, so she can be with Hassan, her beloved. I think this is what I loved most about this play. Its universal themes of holiness, spirituality, asceticism, romantic love, and sacrifice. The play, by the way, was also made into a famous 1937 film in Warsaw that is now thought to be one of the best Yiddish films ever made, a true relic of the old Yiddish theater. I haven't seen this version. Before I finish, I have two Halloween-themed folklore-influenced films to recommend. First, Neil Jordan's excellent The Company of Wolves. It's a longtime favorite of mine. The film is a collection of Irish folk tales and adaptations of stories by Angela Carter, which can be found in her equally amazing collection, The Bloody Chamber. She also adapted these stories for the film, along with Jordan. They include wolf-themed tales such as the title story, The Bloody Chamber, The Werewolf, which is played by Angela Hansberry, Wolf Alice, about a feral child, and several others, including one about a pregnant maiden's revenge on the man who got her pregnant, and one featuring Stephen Ray as a mysterious stranger returning to the woman he married before abandoning her for his wolf pack on his wedding night. Many people remember the amazing wolf transformation special effects, or the fact that this is a dark fairy tale variation on Little Red Riding Hood, but the film is much more than that, combining ancient lycanthropic myths, anxieties about marriage and sexuality, hammer horror theatrics, and plenty of black humor. Sticking with this Irish fairy tale theme, I also recommend the film The Eclipse, written by Connor McPherson. The film, The Eclipse, concerns an Irish widower and father of two who begins to have supernatural visions that are somehow connected to his dying father and a writer of supernatural tales who is visiting his hometown for a literary conference. It's a hard film to describe because nothing much happens, but I will say that it effectively combines several different genres, including horror, thriller, romance, and the folktale. If nothing else, after watching it, you'll definitely want to visit Cobb in Cor County Cork, Ireland, which looks absolutely stunning. Aside from the film's beautiful setting, I locked into its unique wavelength, and I found it to be a scary, mysterious, and warm-hearted film all in one. It also has great acting by Kieran Hans and Aidan Quinn, and one very well-placed scare scene that will make you pause the next time you open the closet door. Well, that's it uh, for me today, and I'll definitely post links to all of these on my Twitter feed, which is at HappyWanderer13. And thanks all for sticking with me. See you next time. Thanks, Mike. Mike can be found, as always, at HappyWanderer13 on Twitter. And if you if you follow me on Twitter, would you also follow him? I currently like re repost a lot of stuff, but I'm trying to get him some more followers. Because he's cool. He just got back from Vietnam, so he might have some travel stories for us uh, in, in the future. And maybe we'll try to do an end-of-the-year movie thing, if I can coordinate it. As you can tell, I'm very behind on things. Next up is Bailey School alumni Dan Hartman, reviewing Birds, Beasts, and Relatives by Gerald Durrell. This is a, 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 a memoirs of his childhood uh, from the Amazon webpage, part coming-of-age autobiography and part nature guide. Gerald Durrell's dazzling sequel to My Family and Other Animals is based on his boyhood in, on Corfu from 1933 to 1939. Originally published in 1969, but long out of print, Birds, Beasts, and Relatives is filled with charming observations, amusing anecdotes, boyhood memories, and childlike wonder.
This book is called Birds, Beasts, and Relatives by Gerald Durrell. I want to preface my review of this book by saying that I looked up Gerald Durrell on the internet and I read a bit about his life. And by Wikipedia's account, he seems to have been a good person. He was a man who was ahead of his time in promoting conservation and the ethical treatment of animals and the use of zoos as vehicles only for rescuing endangered species through captive breeding programs. He seems to have been a good-hearted man with a true love of people, nature, and animals. But I would not have known any of this if I had just read his book. Birds, Beasts, and Relatives is a set of stories about Gerald Durrell and his family that takes place in the late 1930s on the Greek island of Corfu. The humor in the book is of the mean-spirited variety in which people are disrespectful to each other and just insult one another all the time. Thus, throughout the book, we are treated to the angst-filled tirades of Gerald's brothers, Leslie and Lawrence, as they complain bitterly about this trivial thing or that, along with mean-spirited descriptions of, but of people that include adjectives like fat and ugly. The situational comedy is similarly unpleasant, involving drunk people showing up at all hours of the night and people almost drowning. Why any of this is supposed to be funny is beyond me. It definitely is not my kind of humor. The author's treatment of animals is similarly disturbing. Mr. Durrell was a collector of animals from a young age, but the impression that I got from this book was that he did not really care all that much about the welfare of the animals that he kept. Rather, he was more concerned about the act of collecting. For example, in one story, the young Gerald Durrell captures three baby hedgehogs, and he has visions of raising them as pets. When his sister accidentally overfeeds and kills them, Gerald is saddened, but not so much by their deaths as by the fact that his daydream of keeping these unusual pets is gone. Similarly, when Gerald is introduced to a gypsy man who owns a dancing bear, his concern is not for the welfare of the bear, but on how he might go about acquiring the bear for himself. Throughout the book, there seems to be a careless, selfish nature to Gerald's animal collecting. Animals are introduced and promptly forgotten, never to be heard of again. Pets are acquired without proper preparation or means for their care. And always, Gerald seems to be on the lookout for the next great thing. One is left wondering how well he was able to care for his ever-growing menagerie. In addition to these flaws, I found the writing itself to be only mediocre. In a number of places, a word is used too frequently, or in a way that I found jarring. Gerald's brother Leslie, for example, is several times said to have spoken truculently, a word that sounds forced even when it's not overused. Unnecessary adverbs abound when richer descriptions would have served better. I even found an I-me error, which is an unforgivable grammatical transgression. It may sound like I'm picking at nits here, but these sorts of things detract from my enjoyment of a book. The book does, of course, have a few redeeming features. Some of the descriptions of Corfu are wonderful, and for brief moments one gets the sense of the beauty and wonder that Gerald Durrell must have felt as he fished and explored the area. What a pity that he did not choose to focus more on those sentiments. As I read this book, I kept thinking about James Harriet White's book, All Creatures Great and Small. In many ways, the setup is the same. Stories of a young man with a love of animals growing up in the early 1900s in a somewhat exotic locale. But while All Creatures Great and Small is hilarious, heartwarming, and one of my favorite books of all time, this one is just blah. For me, I believe the key difference is that the former is full of love and empathy, while this one is decidedly not. Part of that may be due to the time of life about which these two authors wrote. Mr. Harriet about, wrote about his twenties and thirties, while this account of Mr. Durrell is from when he was less than ten years old. When you're very young, the world does seem to revolve around you, and that may be the reason for some of the selfishness that I detect within its pages. But while this may partly explain why the book seems hollow to me, it does nothing to improve it.
All right. Thanks, Dan, for this week's or month's song of the week. I chose a lesser well-known song by a well-known artist. When Beck's Mellow Gold album came out in 1994, the most talked about track was still Loser, though it had been released to surprise excess the year before as a single. But the song Black Hole, which concludes Mellow Gold, not including the hidden track on there, has always intrigued me, and it was the one I was constantly drawn to. And uh, it has this sort of sludgy guitar sound. There's a violin or maybe a viola playing. There's hypnotic repetition, and there's a drone. And being so different from some of the more upbeat and funny songs on the album, it still maintains the jumble sale allure of Beck at this stage of his career, which really appealed to me. And... Its lyrics are kind of vague, and I kind of get this sense of a childhood confusion at understanding life, and kind of a, a, a maybe a haze of a few days in a in a life when things aren't making sense, and you're trying to piece it all together. And that's just my interpretation of the song. Uh, as I said, it's very vague lyrics, and you probably would have your own interpretation of the song. But I particularly like this segment, which which kind of sums up the song for me and is sort of the, the emotional heart of the song. Wake up, wake up. So that's my song of the week. If you have a song that you would like to promote as the song you've been really into, something you'd like to talk about, you can record some audio or you can just tell me the song and tell me what you'd like to say and I can read it out on the on the podcast. Send me a tweet at candle underscore ends or look for me on Facebook, candle ends or candle hyphen ends at candleends.com. And that's about it for this week. Uh, hopefully I'll have more for you, but uh, to be honest, I don't have any interviews set up. Uh, but before we go, here is my attempt at a Bailey Little Folk song. And if you or someone you know would like to help me record another Bailey Little Folk song, I really like the idea of putting together a collection where each person uh, interprets a different song from the Bailey Little Folk collection. So if you'd like to... Uh, listen to the song further. You can find it on bandcamp.com as all my songs from Hunting for Candle Ends. This one is entirely free since it's not just my work. It's you know based on Robert Anderson's work. And you can check it out there. The title is The Bailey Little Folk and the Orchard Street Circle. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs> Farmer 
walking home at night. The moon was large and filled the woods with a neary light. He was thinking about a girl he'd had a chance to meet her. Laugh with all her friends at a dance by the red cedar. When all at once he heard a sound come from down below, and he saw these little people—they were swarming round his toes. Folk looked very angry. He forgot those pretty lasses. Apparently, it seemed he'd stepped on some tiny glasses. This porch it was a forest. This door a sycamore. And yes, there was three dinosaurs, but they ain't here no more. And I know you won't believe me. You'll think it's just a joke, and you can laugh, but trust me, about the belly little boy. Well, the farmer he felt sorry, so he quick apologized. And the folk realized it weren't his fault. He was so giant-sized. And they gave him tea and told him all the secrets they were keeping. How they only came out in the night when the human folk were sleeping. Well, the morning stars were fading and the sun began to rise. And the little folk they disappeared right before his eyes. So the farmer he walked home just a quarter mile more, and he told his family what he'd seen the night before. Well, this porch was a forest. This door a sycamore. Is there once were dinosaurs, but they ain't here no more. And I know you won't believe me. You'll think it's just a joke, and you can laugh, but trust me, about the belly little boy. Well, with this crazy tale, his parents started thinking. The farmer he had spent the night out there moonshine drinking. So he took them to the spot, and his brother he soon found a tiny pair of spectacles lying on the ground. Well, soon the story spread. And the legend it persisted. Till everyone around believed the little folk existed. 
while they built these lancing up so quickly all around them never was their pavement placed on the spot he found them paths covered roads widened out there they pour around about and the lines we would not forget where the farmer and the little folk met his portrait was a forest Sycamore. Yes, there once were dinosaurs, but they ain't here no more. And I know you won't believe me, or think it's just a joke. And you can laugh, but trust me about the Billy Little Fool. 